So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Melissa Mata. Uh, Dr. Mata is one of our faculty in uh, the Department of Neurology and uh, focusing on neurocritical care. She did her MD and MPH at uh, George Washington, uh, followed up with a, a residency in neurology and a neurocritical care fellowship in, neuro in neurology, uh, uh, I'm re repeating myself, neurocritical care fellowship at Hopkins as well. So, um, so today I want to have her uh, talk to you about ischemic stroke management. Thanks, Melissa. Hi, everyone. Um, Mike, thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm glad that um, I'm glad that uh, I get a chance to to repeat this. I, the last time I gave this talk to this group was maybe two years ago, and wow, what a difference two year two years make. There's a lot of new updates, and I essentially had to sort of redo this entire presentation or um, include a lot of new information here. Um, so hopefully. Um, I give you some of that new information or things that you're eager to hear about. And if not, um, I'll leave some time at the end for any specific questions or things that you ha have um, questions on. So I really, I really can't start a talk on stroke without sort of impressing upon you how important stroke is as far as a health problem in the United States and in the world. It's really the leading cause of disability um, and long-term disability in patients in the United States. Um, so anything that we can really do to bring someone from a modified ranking of five or four where they're nursing homebound to a three to two um, where they can perhaps be home and even ambulatory even with assistance um, will have a tremendous impact on the quality of life of patients and also on the cost of care for those patients. Um, so this is what I'm hoping to cover. Um, some of the basics on the management of acute stroke and then um, talk about reperfusion therapies. IV TPA still remains the mainstay of acute stroke treatment, so we'll talk a little bit about that, um, and then I give you, a, um, as quick as I can, an update on endovascular treatment and where we stand today. Um, and then for completeness, also talk about some of the ICU-related management of stroke patients in the acute setting um, and uh, complications that we manage in the ICU, as well as what's next as far as reperfusion therapies. So I'll start with the question, as I did last time, and this is someone whom we might encounter here in the hospital, um, a woman who's 65 years old who's admitted for pneumonia. Um, she was evaluated by a nurse at noontime, found to be normal, and then at 3 p.m. when vitals are checked, she's found to be aphasic and weak on the right. Yeah, so from the critical care board's review uh, question. Um, and um, heparin has very limited indications um, in uh, the management of acute stroke, perhaps sinus venous um, cerebral vein thrombosis um, or hot carotid would be one of those, but um, beyond the scope of this talk. Um, and then imaging, brain MRI, um, MRA, um, we'll talk about later about how those come into play in the management of acute stroke, but uh, not really. A head CT, and if negative, IV TPA, and I think most of you all know that that's the correct answer in this particular case if there's no contraindications. Um, uh, a head CT, and if negative, intrauterial therapy, and we'll talk about when that um, uh, would be the correct answer, um, but typically IV TPA followed by some kind of endovascular therapy. Uh, aspirin, and nothing can be done, um, so just there for extra. And so virtually very little change in the management of acute stroke from about 400 BC when <laughs> Hippocrates first described apoplexy um, to when Burkow described thromboembolism. And C. Miller Fisher uh, spent quite a bit of time characterizing different types of strokes in very memorable and alliterative ways. Um, but it wasn't, and so uh, I think I've heard some of you say um, diagnose and adios. Uh, so it wasn't until um, 1995 when the NINDS published this study on uh, tissue plasminogen activator 
and uh, how it had the potential to improve outcomes for people with acute stroke, um, that really the management of acute stroke changed dramatically. Um, and so I've sort of developed, it just, just made up this little timeline here on the evolution of reperfusion therapy in patients with stroke and ongoing efforts. Um, here, here on this end, 1995 um, is the NINDS study, and then in uh, 2008, ECAS-3 really extended the time window to four and a half hours um, for some selected patients and really confirmed the safety of, of IV TPA as an acute stroke treatment. And then we had a bit of a dry spell there in the orange middle um, where we had uh, lots of attempts at um, positive trials of endovascular therapy, but nothing really proven to show um, improvement in clinical outcomes. And then starting February of this year, we've just had an explosion of clinical trials, level one data that show that endovascular therapy um, can improve outcomes for selected patients. Um, the last time I gave this talk, these guidelines have just come out in 2013, um, and um, they're probably due for an update now. Um, I put them up here because they still are a valid reference, and a lot of the, the guidelines that um, are, um, or a lot of the um, statements made in these guidelines still apply, despite the um, more recent data that's come out. Um, and it's uh, really the reference for a lot of the recommendations um, that I'll, I'll bring up throughout the talk. And so something that rarely happens in medicine has happened in the last few months in the stroke world, which is that there's really been a preponderance of level one evidence that, that really changed the way that we uh, care for a select group of patients with, with acute stroke. Um, and these are some of the trials, uh, the um, Swift Prime, and that, that's not their logo, that's just a, amazing things that happens when you Google things and look at Google Images, um, Mr. Clean, Extend IA, and Escape. Um, but we'll talk about some of these uh, later on in the talk. Um, but before I get there, I really just want to very briefly, and for completeness, talk about um, the initial assessment of patient with stroke and cover just the very basics. Um, and, and the approach to stroke is very algorithmic, um, with the mind always on do, acting as quickly as possible and making decisions. And so once you suspect someone's having an acute stroke, you think about uh, whether or not they would be candidates for some kind of thrombolysis or other reperfusion strategy. You try to understand why the stroke happened. You want to try to limit infarct or progression of stroke, uh, uh, reduce risk of hemorrhagic conversion, monitor for worsening edema if it's a large hemispheric stroke, and prevent other complications that can develop. And they, really, that's it. And, and so during the rest of the talk, I'm really going to sort of expand on some of these concepts. But this slide really some, sort of sums it all up. Um, a dry head CT is all you really need to begin the process of evaluating someone for a stroke. Um, CT really is the pivotal development that allowed acute stroke management um, to succeed and acute interactions to succeed. In the 60s, somebody decided it would be a good idea to give fibrinolytics to people having acute stroke. And that didn't really work out so well because clinically it's very difficult to tell, sorry, I don't have a pointer, but it, it's very difficult to tell whether someone is having a hemorrhagic stroke and would present very clinically very similar to someone who's having an ischemic stroke. Um, and so that's the first step is really a CAT scan to see if there's an area of hemorrhage. Um, um, and the CT is really the diagnostic requirement um, for treatment uh, in patients who you were evaluating for reperfusion therapy. Um, then uh, the CT scan can also give you 
um, some bonus information. In reality, if you're thinking of TPA for someone, what you expect to find on a head CT is nothing. It's really unremarkable, and that's really all you need. Um, but you can see some other things. You can see some early ischemic changes, a blurring of the gray-white, which is that second image there in the middle, um, uh, pointing to a left hemispheric area of, of infarct, and even some hypodensity that's really evolving at this point. Um, and you can see some other things, like a hyperdense MCA, which is the one on the far right, um, with the red arrow there, um, that might suggest to you that there's a proximal occlusion that might require um, uh, mechanical embolectomy. Um, as far as other diagnostic studies, there's a number of labs that are sent, but none are really essential except for blood glucose. Um, and in some cases, if you suspect there's coagulopathy or derangements in platelets, um, those would be required. But in general, you're not obligated to wait for any of those labs in order to initiate treatment. Um, unless you suspect it'd be abnormal, in which case you would. Um, and the neurologic evaluation really consists of this NIH stroke scale, and I know it seems like this really long list of things to check, but it really allows for us to communicate in a standardized fashion about what's happening when someone's having a stroke, to estimate the stroke burden, to follow the exam, and to um, assess whether there's been improvement or worsening in the symptoms. Um, so you're thinking, this is silly, it's really long, I don't really do this often enough to remember all these different things to check. Well, there's an app you can put on your phone, <laughs> and you can just plug it in as you do each part. Um, but it is the way that we communicate about what's happening to someone that's having a stroke. You don't need to pull out your reflex hammer that someone gave you in medical school or something like that. You don't need that. Um, but this is the list of things that we need. And essentially, that's it. Once you have an NIH stroke scale and you think someone's having a stroke and you have a sense of when that's happening, that's about it. Um, and so I'm just going to move on to uh, reperfusion strategy. So when, when is someone a candidate for IV TPA? Um, that's it. You think they're having a stroke, you think they're having an ischemic stroke, and you know when they were last known normal. And that time happens to be within the four and a half hour window. Um, and then once you've concluded that, then you can think about what would exclude them from receiving TPA. And the bottom line is here, you think if you give TPA, this would cause someone to bleed very severely and you wouldn't be able to do anything to stop it. Um, and so things like head trauma, um, arterial puncture at a non-compressible site, history of a prior hemorrhage, a recent spine surgery or neurosurgical procedure, um, and refractory hypertension um, that you're not able to treat with some, some readily available things like labetal or nicotine drip. Um, and then if patients are on um, coagulopathic in some way, or if they're on Coumadin, their INR has to be 1.7 or less in order for them to be a candidate for, I for IV TPA. Um, and if they're using some of the more novel oral anticoagulants, um, if they haven't received a dose in a couple of days, they would still be included um, as someone who could receive IV TPA. And then the last one here is um, the CT demonstrates a multilobar infarction of greater than one-third of the cerebral hemisphere. So if someone's already completed their infarct on CT, they're more likely to bleed, and that would be one reason you might not want to give them TPA. Um, there's some other ones that are sort of relative exclusion criteria that we sometimes talk about, and this is where your re clinical judgment comes into play. Um, major surgery in the preceding three months, uh, myocardial infarction. Um, clinically significant GI bleeding, like they require transfusions or they're hypotensive, those would be reasons you probably wouldn't want to give TPA. Um, but if someone's had a hemocult that was positive, that would 
definitely not quali qualify as clinically significant GI bleeding. You guys know that. And as far as the extended time, one of three to four and a half hours, there's some additional criteria that are basically because those patients were not included in the ECAS-3 trial. Um, uh, but there are circumstances where, for example, a patient who's more than 80 years old would be a candidate for IVTPA. And as you hear me say later on, as far as embolectomy is concerned, there is no upper age limit. And so in those cases, all those patients received IVTPA followed by embolectomy for the most part. And so that would be one reason to make an exception for someone who's older, particularly if they're functional. Um, severe strokes, patients taking Coumadin, and the history of diabetes and uh, stroke is changing, and in fact, the Alteplase um, insert has now changed from contraindication to warning as far as these things are concerned. So does somebody know what the number needed to treat um, to benefit from IVTPA is? Seven? <laughs> yeah, so to, to uh, improve um, to normal or near normal, the number is eight. And to improve as far as modified ranking is concerned by at least one point, the number is three. Um, so not bad. Uh, some folks are afraid of giving TPA because there is more than minimal risk. In fact, patients who receive TPA, there was a 6% chance of sig clinically significant intracerebral hemorrhage compared to placebo, which was only 0.6%. Um, but when you think about um, what that means as far as potential for improvement in outcome, for every 100 patients that were treated with TPA, 30, 32 benefited and three were harmed. So I'm here to tell you, if you follow the rules um, and you are strict about uh, the timing um, and the inclusion exclusion that I just mentioned, you're more likely to help someone than you are to harm them um, by giving them TPA. Um, and But this effect of um, improvement in clinical outcome is not the same for all, and in fact, this is pooled data from six different randomized placebo-controlled trials um, of IVTPA, and you can see the odds of a favorable outcome as we go down the line of time um, on the bottom there um, decreases, and it really, those confidence intervals do cross, at that red line, cross the threshold around four and a half hours. And so um, the sooner the TPA is given, the more likely it is to benefit someone and the less likely it is to harm them. And here it is in a different format. Um, um, you can see the number of patients who benefited and were harmed per 100 patients uh, at each of the time windows. Um, when, when you look at the 0 to 90 time window, you see that 27 patients benefit and, and one were harmed. So the number needed to treat there is three. And then as you move down, into the 90-minute to 180-minute window, the number needed to treat is four. And then up to the four-and-a-half-hour window, the number needed to treat is six. And then after that, the risk versus harm uh, ratio really inverts um, um, beyond that time window. Um, so moving on to endovascular treatments, this is the next question. So a 43-year-old woman is brought to the hospital for abnormal mental status during the past five hours. She felt dizzy and nauseated and then became obtundent. GCS is eight. Um, she has fixed unreactive pupils, um, only vertical eye movements, and the CT shows a hyperdense signal at the level of the basilar. Um, the question is, which intervention would be most appropriate at this point? And so this syndrome localizes to brainstem. Um, she's got fixed small pupils. She can't really move her eyes. She's essentially locked in. 
Um, and she has a hyperdense signal suggesting a basal or artery thrombus. Um, so she's really past that four and a half hour window I just mentioned for IV TPA, but we can still offer her a chance at reperfusion with endovascular treatment. So the correct answer here would be D, um, and, um, and that's so local thrombolytics, but um, it, no, mechanical thrombectomy in addition to local thrombolytics would probably be the correct answer here. And we'll talk about how that applies. So why, why endovascular treatments? Why have we been down the chase for, for demonstration of clinical outcomes here? Um, and the reason is that for a long time we've known that proximal occlusion, for proximal occlusions, meaning an, uh, uh, an ICA, sort of T, uh, carotid T occlusion or proximal M1 occlusion, the rates of revascularization with IV TPA alone are pretty low. And you can see there are four to eight percent um, or maybe up to a third of patients with the proximal. And, and the reason is that the clot tend to be larger in the larger vessels and the clot burden is significant enough where perhaps the IV TPA is not able to really lyse the entirety of the clot and, and result in recanalization. Um, and so that's what we've been after is figuring out how we can get the clots out of these patients. Um, so the general principle is as follows. There's a thrombus sitting in a large vessel like a proximal MCA. Um, and then in the next picture there, you see an angiogram where there's an ICA and an MCA and there's an abrupt cutoff where the thrombus is sitting in the MCA. And in the following picture, you see revascularization of that territory with now flow distal to that thrombus. Um, and in the bottom here, um, I've included this because these are the different devices that we are talking about. And um, the first one is a, is a Mercy device or a coil retriever where there's a coil that goes in and pulls out the clot. There's a penumbra device, which is sort of an aspiration type device. So the catheter goes in and it has a little area of suction. And finally, the bottom one is um, the stent trievers, um, which we'll talk about a little more. Um, and those go in. Uh, this is really a page from the cardiology literature. Go in, stent up the vessel, and then with the stent, yank out the clot. Um, and so these are, this is the wording of the guidelines from 2013. Um, and, um, and there's been an updated since that we're going to review. Um, but. Um, Despite the negative trials at the time of this publication, the guidelines still sort of allowed for um, use of endovascular therapy, both intraarterial uh, TPA as well as mechanical thrombectomy in certain populations. In, um, in patients who had not responded um, to IV TPA or were not candidates for IV TPA, uh, embolectomy was still thought to be uh, perhaps of benefit in carefully selected patients. And that's really how they worded this. Um, the second one, not responded to IV pharmacolytics, you'll hear me say today, will no longer be in the, in the revision of the guidelines simply because we do these things in parallel now and um, we would give IV TPA and not wait to see if people get better before we, we evaluate for embolectomy. Uh, um, another thing we learned is that um, stent retrievers are better than the other devices I just showed you. And the reason is... Um, See if I can use this. Oops, no. The reason is this stent retrievers get deployed into the vessel where the thrombus is and then pull out the thrombus. But during the time where the stent retrievers or the coal retrievers in the vessel, there really no, there's really no flow um, at the level of the vessel. 
the stent retrievers uh, have a much better shot of recanalization because they get deployed into the thrombus, and then once they're open, a, a channel is open, and blood can flow through the stent into the area of brain that was not receiving blood flow. And then after a period of time, the stent, the stent retriever um, is pulled out along with the thrombus. And so even if you have to do multiple attempts, while you're attempting, you're still providing blood flow to an area that was obstructed. Um, and IMS3 is really what showed us that recanalization is the goal. Um, although there was no clinical benefit, um, there was a couple of things that we learned from IMS3. One is that for every 30 minutes that pass until angiographic reperfusion, uh, the probability of the good outcome decreases pretty dramatically um, about by, by about 10%. And so IMS had planned to enroll 900 patients. They really stopped for futility around 650 patients. Um, but we learned that reperfusion matters. And this is what I mean by that. Um, the TIKI scores are what we use to sort of describe the degree of reperfusion to an area. Um, and on the left-hand side there are the percent of patients who had a good outcome, modified ranking of 0 to 2 at 90 days. And you can see that for patients who had a TIKI 2B or 3, sort of at the far end there on the right, um, the percentage of patients who had a good outcome was close to half. Um, and um, the patients who did not achieve reperfusion just simply did not have as good of an outcome, um, or did not have a good outcome, rather. Um, and that's where the breakpoint really lies. When we try to divide it or sort of accept a lower recanalization rate, like a, a TIKI A, um, we find that those patients, we don't achieve as good outcomes. Um, so we know what our goal is when we bring patients to IR to try to recanalize. We attempt and attempt until we achieve this degree of recanalization. Um, so the, I've sort of talked a little bit about IMS and MR rescue and synthesis were also trials that looked at um, IA or IA in conjunction with first generation devices uh, for endovascular uh, treatment. Um, and they did not achieve the same rates of recanalization, which is probably why they did not show clinical benefit. Um, then the um, second generation of trials that have been published this year are trials that almost exclusively use the stent retrievers that I just showed you and demonstrated improved recanalization rates up to 88%, so anywhere between 60 to 88%. And all of those trials showed clinical benefit. So what changed between a year and a half ago to now is that the technology for the stent retrievers changed, and, um, and we're really able to get there and, and actually retrieve the clot and achieve the revascularization rates that are necessary in order to improve outcomes. And so, admittedly, a very, very busy slide, but I felt that rather than presenting each specific trial separately, this would be a more useful way to, um, to introduce a number of concepts that they'll then break down into, into, certain, um, into separate slides. Um, and so, uh, I wish I had a pointer here to show you, but so along the, along the, um, So along here are the names of all the trials that have been published this year, and there's a lot of them, it's like eight, um, and um, the number of patients. And nearly, so the first thing I wanted to tell you guys is that nearly every trial had a, a time um, window um, as part of the inclusion. Uh, so from onset of symptoms, um, 
to revascularization, it was typically six hours. There's a couple of trials you see here, the Reviscat and the ESCAPE trial, that had um, longer time windows, eight or 12 hours, but the percentage of patients that they enrolled at those later times was very small. You can see for Reviscat, 90% um, uh, was less than six hours, and for ESCAPE, 84% um, in less than six hours. So that six hour mark um, has become um, um, very important when sort of thinking about who could benefit from this kind of treatment. The, um, the second, I think, very important point I've already made, but I'll show you here again, is that none of the trials had exclusion for age, so there was no upper age limit. So there were all trials in adults greater than 18 years old, but there was no upper age limit. And, and they certainly enrolled a significant number of patients above the age of 80. And in subgroup analysis, when they looked at patients who were above the age of 80 versus patients who were not, um, the benefit was still there. Um, so even older patients who have good function can benefit from this kind of treatment. Um, and you can see the median age there was around 65-ish uh, for most of the trials as well. Um, there were some um, trials that included NIH stroke skill as part of their inclusion criteria, and it's really meant as a surrogate for a large vessel occlusion. Um, but most uh, NIH stroke skill is not highly sensitive or specific for a large vessel occlusion in some cases. You know, the higher the NIH stroke skill, the more likely. But there are situations where low NIH stroke skills could have a large vessel occlusion with good collaterals, and you would ha end up with less neurologic deficits. Um, but um, the uh, um, majority of, of trials had an NI stroke skill sort of cut off of six or greater um, uh, to sort of meet their muster for potential for um, large vessel occlusion. Um, most patients um, were treated with IV TPA first, and there are the numbers. You can see anywhere between 100%, I think the lowest was 73% of patients in all of these trials were treated with IV TPA first. Um, so that's important to think about when you're thinking about successful recanalization rates. It's not just the device, that mechanical embolectomy, but, but in, in, these case, in these cases, these patients also receive systemic TPA or alteplase. Um, and then they were very, very fast at recanalization, at treating these patients. And um, if you skip over to the median time from onset of symptoms to growing puncture, you'll see that most of the time they were achieving growing puncture within four and a half hours of onset of symptoms. So, um, so that also becomes important in applying this into the real world and into the patients that we take care of, which is they were able to succeed at showing good clinical outcomes, but they were also very fast at getting there and recanalizing, uh, which is the next uh, column over, which is the percent recanalization rates. And they were pretty good at that too. You can see there, um, in many cases, anywhere between 50 and 88 percent. And finally, but most importantly, they showed improved outcomes compared um, to patients who did not receive embolectomy. Um, um, and I'm going to show you the next. And, and, in, and, in, and in all cases, there was no increase in mortality, in morbidity, or in symptomatic hemorrhage in any of these trials. They were equivalent. And so now, specifically to the independent functional outcome at 90 days, which was a modified ranking of zero to two, I think most of us would find that an acceptable outcome after having a large hemispheric stroke. Um, 
that means you're independent, you're able to walk without assistance uh, at worst. And at best, you're back to normal. Um, and so the rates of independent functional outcome after endovascular treatment are dramatic. I mean, the effects sizes are dramatic. It almost doubles your chances of an independent functional outcome. Um, and so the first one there is IMS3 that I sort of mentioned already, um, which was a trial that did not show clinical improvement. And we've talked about the reasons why perhaps that was not the case. Um, and then the following ones are the ones that have all been published since February. And you can see in the blue endovascular treatment and then the red standard care, which usually included IV TPA um, and the relative, relative risk of a favorable functional outcome. Pretty good for most of these trials. The number needed to treat uh, ranged from three to seven to, imp to improve someone um, to a modified ranking of zero to two. And so after the International Stroke Conference in February and the uproar over all these trials, the AHA published a focus update on the guidelines from 2013. And that's what I'm going to review with you now very quickly. Um, and the first and foremost thing about all of this is, and I feel like I'm a broken record now, but TPA first, IV TPA first. And so patients eligible for intravenous TPA should receive intravenous TPA if endovascular treatments are being considered. So these things happen in parallel. And rapid administration of IV TPA is still the mainstay of early acute stroke treatment. Um, patients who receive endovascular therapy with a stent retriever um, can receive this therapy if they meet these criteria. And holy moly, there's lots of them, right? Um, and I, I, I sort of wanted to, uh, there's an awful lot of them. Uh, why so many? Um, well, the, patient, the persons who developed the guidelines were very careful to, to look at the trials that have been published and really uh, look at the patients that were enrolled and, and focus on uh, making sure that we don't apply this treatment to everyone, but we stick to what we know and the patients we know benefited from them. And that's how they came up with these guidelines. And so I'll read them out to you here. First, you have to have a pre-morbid modified ranking of zero to one. Uh, you have to have an acute systemic stroke and get IV TPA within the four and a half hour window. You have to have a causative occlusion of an internal carotid artery or proximal M1 artery. Uh, you have to be an adult. You have to have an NI stroke score of six or greater. You have to have an aspect score of six or greater. I'll tell you what that is in a second. Um, and treatment has to be initiated. Growing puncture has to occur within six hours of symptom onset. So why this premorbid function prerequisite? Well, four out of the five trials um, used a pre-stroke function eligibility criteria. Um, and so um, is there a situation where embolectomy might be considered in someone who has a modified ranking above one? Probably, and the guidelines do allow for that, but the benefits aren't certain, and the trials did not evaluate that patient population. So if you have a young person who's wheelchair-bound and is having a stroke but is otherwise functional, it would be entirely reasonable to offer this kind of therapy to that person, even if the modified ranking doesn't quite meet muster. I think one of the... Um, one of the uh, one of the folks in neurocritical care who, who, uh, who's interested in outcomes says that even a zombie has a modified ranking of two, and they're dead. And so sometimes you have to take those numbers into consideration. You have to sort of take it with a grain of salt and the clinical context um, and not just adhere to the criteria. Um, 
And so why IVTPA first? And I just don't want to keep repeating myself, but most cases, nearly every patient um, received IVTPA first before the stent retrievers, and that's why. Um, what about if my patient can't get IVTPA? Well, the guidelines, the revised guidelines say there's inadequate data to know what's going to happen with these patients, but it's reasonable to conclude that if it helped patients who received IVTPA, if the patients are not candidates for IVTPA and still meet the other criteria like six hours from stroke onset, that embolectomy might be a reasonable choice. And this, um, or they're not a candidate for IVTPA because of non-time-based or um, reasons like uh, recent surgery, cardiac surgery, or coagulopathy or something like that. So documentation of a large artery occlusion is a requirement for this treatment. And so one of the mistakes of the prior trials is that in many cases there was no requirement to document a large vessel occlusion. And so you can imagine how that would be problematic because we're trying to treat a thrombus that's not there. And so the first step after you've done your dry CT and you've given IVTPA is to figure out how you're going to document a large vessel occlusion. And that can be done with a CTA, which usually should happen after IVTPA is administered or concurrently, rather. Um, um, but IVTPA should not be delayed for additional imaging. But additional imaging must occur prior to going to the um, angiography suite to have an embolectomy. Um, and it can be done with a dry CT. I mentioned the hyperdense MCA, and that's very suggestive of a proximal occlusion. It can be done with a CTA, which is the bottom um, uh, picture there, where you can see that there's a paucity of vessels there in that left hemisphere, um, suggesting a proximal occlusion or a cutoff. Um, and when you have this kind of imaging, you end up with that kind of angiogram where there's a thrombus sitting in the proximal MCA. Um, and then if you remove that thrombus, um, and you have recanalization, there's potential for you to have a much smaller stroke um, than you would expect. Um, why only internal carotids or M1 occlusions? I don't know if you guys noticed that they were very specific about that. Um, and because the overwhelming majority of the patients in these centriver trials had internal carotid um, like T occlusions or proximal M1 occlusions. Um, there was a proportion of patients that had M2 occlusions, like you know, uh, that bottom right-hand corner there. Uh, but um, there was a small number of patients, so it's really hard to say or draw a conclusion about this subset. Um, but uh, does that mean that we wouldn't offer the therapy to someone who had an M2 occlusion? Probably not, and it would, again, depend on the clinical situation, the NIH stroke scale, and a number of other factors um, in trying to decide who might be a candidate despite having, and then also the anatomy of the vessels, who might be a candidate for therapy with a more distal thrombus. And like the case and question I just uh, presented earlier, um, if someone has a basal artery thrombus, those patients were not ex included. I think there was only all of two patients in all that very long list of trials that had a basal occlusion that were treated, but given the morbidity and the severity of outcomes in patients who have vascular occlusions, it would be reasonable to offer this therapy to that patient population as trials are ongoing. Um, what is aspects? And so I mentioned that we used to have this criteria for one-third of the MCA territory hypodense on CT, not a good idea to give IVTPA. Well, this is really a, a parallel to that a concept, which is we don't want to treat patients who have very large core infarcts already with reperfusion therapy because once the brain is dead, 
putting blood back into that brain is not going to magically bring that brain back. In fact, it's just going to increase the risk of bleeding into that brain. And so this is a uh, scoring system that was developed in Canada that allows us to, in a more objective, um, objective uh, way, quantify what degree of hypodensity or core, in fact, is already present prior to reperfusion. Um, and so we'll be using this, and, and there's also an app for this. I know it's a 10-point score, like after I don't know how many points it gets really tricky to do this kind of thing. But um, so um, 10 is the, is the maximum number of points, and you get 10 points if there's no hypodensity on your scan. And for each of these areas marked here, it's kind of hard to see because they're in white, but for each of these areas of cortex, um, supra and infraganglionic, you get a point deducted until you get zero points, which means that the entire territory is infarcted or hypodense on CAT scan. And this is an example. So this is an aspects of 10. There's no area of hypodensity. There's lots of brain that can be saved. You're included. This is an aspect of zero. Um, and, and you can see how subtle this can be. Um, but on the right hemisphere, you can see a hyperdense MCA, proximal occlusion there, and then a hypodense tissue in that entire hemisphere. So you get all the points deducted, aspects of zero. This is someone who's already infarcted or completed their infarct and probably wouldn't benefit from getting blood flow restored to that area. Why six hours? Um, and um, three of the five stent retriever trials specified that six-hour window. Um, and as I mentioned, the other two had a very small number of patients beyond that. Um, and so as I showed you in the IVTPA graphic, the benefit is really time dependent. And so the earlier uh, the reperfusion occurs, the more likely you are to have a good outcome. Um, and that confidence interval starts to cross one around the six hour mark. And this is from the uh, MR clean study. Uh, but similar graphics are available for the other trials. Um, and so reperfusion, time is brain again. So. Um, you can see in this uh, table, uh, at the top there are the older studies at the beginning of 2013, which took much longer to reperfuse the brain, and their percentage of patients with good functional outcome was much lower. Um, and in the newer studies, which were very quick, within four and a half hours for the most part, you can see a much larger percentage of patients with a good functional outcome or modified ranking of zero to two at 90 days. And so. Um, there's some ongoing trials that are looking at the extended time windows, 6 to 24 hours, um, and we'll see um, what those trials show. But I think in general, we, we, time and time again, we've shown that the earlier the brain is reperfused, the more likely you are to have a good clinical outcome. And the later, the more you wait, the more harm um, you incur and the less likely you are to benefit. So to summarize this portion of the talk, IVTPA should be the initial treatment for all patients within four and a half hours who are eligible. In parallel, patients should be evaluated for a large vessel occlusion with some kind of vessel imaging, CTA, MR, um, even a dry CT if you can see the thrombus there. And then those patients who have large vessel occlusion should proceed to endovascular thrombectomy. Uh, and the most important factor to improve outcome is early treatment. And then just briefly, in the few minutes we have left, I wanted to touch on some post-stroke care. And I'm going to go through some of this stuff very quickly. But most of us know that 
what happens after the actual treatment for whatever medical condition is just as important to affecting outcomes as whatever we do in the operating room, in the angio suite, or whatever. And so some of these basic acute stroke care concepts, care of patients in the ICU, I think are important to mention. When we admit patients to the ICU, we monitor them with serial exams. If there's a worsening, we get a CAT scan to see if there's been sort of a progression of infarct or hemorrhage or something like that so that we can act on that information. Um, and patients who have not received drip perfusion, the blood pressure goals in the initial 24 hours remain as they, as they are, have been, um, treat blood pressures greater than 220 systolic. For patients who have been reperfused, we are using systolic blood pressure of less than 180. Um, everyone gets aspirin within 24 to 48 hours after having a stroke because it's the one thing that's been shown in a very large randomized controlled trials to reduce your risk of recurrent stroke. There's a number of neurologic complications that can occur, or neurologic and medical complications that could occur to patients with stroke. In fact, it's quite common, about a third of patients have one, at least one serious life-threatening event. Um, about a quarter of them have a serious medical event. 13% have a serious neurologic event. And so these are things that happen quite commonly. Um, pneumonia, by far and away, is the leading cause of morbidity in patients with stroke and mortality. Um, pulmonary embolism is also a serious problem. About 10% of deaths post-stroke are from PE. Endotracheal intubation makes all outcomes worse for every disease that I've ever encountered. And so um, malignant infarction is another thing that we sort of contend with. Cytotoxic edema tends to occur in that seven to, or sorry, three to seven uh, day window. Uh, early reperfusion might modify that timeline uh, and, and it typically results in early edema and can accelerate the edema. So that's something that we might start seeing. Um, the big risk factors for malignant edema are a young person with a large stroke, primarily women. Um, and so, so a large infarct, large volume, about 80 cc's or more, um, and, uh, and a young person is likely to result in malignant infarction or malignant edema. Medical management of edema is, as you know, based on the physiologic principle of Monroe-Kelly. Monroe there's a fixed compartment. There's three things in it. You want to reduce the volume of one of those compartments. But the reality is that medical management of cerebral edema for infarct um, is really considered a temporizing measure and it really extending the window to definitive treatment. And there's only one thing that's been shown um, that hemicrany has been shown to be really, really good for, and that's decreasing ICP. And so you can see here there's a hemicraniectomy, a decrease in ICP, and improved in cerebral perfusion. But it has been shown to uh, reduce the risk of death in, uh, in, in large hemispheric stroke. Um, and this is the pooled analysis of three randomized controlled trials evaluating early decompressive hemicraniectomy um, for large MCA and ICA stroke. And I stroke skills greater than 15 were included, um, age less than 60, um, irrespective of the laterality of the stroke. Um, at 12 months, you can see here the modified ranking of patients who uh, received surgery and those who did not. And the main thing here is mortality was decreased from the 70s percent to the 20 percent. And the number needed to treat to save one life was really two. Um, so it does prevent people from dying from malignant infarction and stroke. Um, is that the right thing to do? Um, what depends on patient's valuations. Um, it does improve outcomes for some people, and as I mentioned, a modified ranking of three ain't so bad. In some cases, that means you can be home just with a little bit of assistance and can still walk. Um, so it depends really on patient valuations. Uh, so.
cerebral strokes. I'm going to skip this, but if someone's having a cerebral stroke and they're compressing their brain stem, again, the answer is remove the bone. Um, um, Perfusion-dependent exam, it's really never been shown in any rigorous randomized controlled trial fashion. There's very few studies that have looked at this, and we do it in some circumstances, but really has not been shown to be of benefit to patients who are having stroke. Um, and the most feared complication of all, symptomatic hemorrhage or hemorrhagic conversion. The risk factors are listed there. You can see about 5 to 6% of patients who receive TPA have a, hemorrhagic, a risk for hemorrhagic conversion. Large strokes, large NIH stroke scales, uncontrolled hypertension is something that we can modify to reduce the risk. Patients who have cardioembolic stroke are more likely to bleed. Um, older folks, um, patients who have early infarct signs on CT are also more likely to bleed. And in the diffuse studies, also um, infarct volume was shown to be related. Um, pH 2, so that one bottom one there, hemorrhagic conversion is the only one that's been shown to, wor to worsen outcomes um, and um, uh, reduce chance of good neurologic recovery. So it's the one that we, we are concerned with because it really impacts outcomes. Um, and uh, this is not the greatest of tables, but what I wanted to show you is that the rates of hemorrhagic conversion based on the trials are different. And the reason is because the definition of what a symptomatic hemorrhage is, is different in many cases and varies. Uh, but it's anywhere between 5 or 10 percent of patients who receive IVTPA. And then post-TPA hemorrhage, this comes up. There's no clear consensus on what the answer is here. Our protocol is to check fibrinogen, give cryo to replete the fibrinogen that's been depleted, give some platelets because there, there's some um, indication that, that they might be dysfunctional, sometimes FFP, sometimes an antifibrinolytic. Um, that's been shown in case series to be of benefit. And then you manage them as you would manage any other intracerebral hemorrhage. So what's next? I want to leave some time for questions, so maybe I'm going to skip through some of this. So what's next is really using imaging um, to select patients for the more prolonged time periods. Um, and, um, and you can see why we've been down this holy grail of perfusion-diffusion imaging. Um, in this, I think this picture really sort of shows you how in that top figure in A, um, there's a small diffusion lesion um, with um, a small ADC infarct core um, at two hours after, or one and a half hours after symptom onset, um, but the diffusion uh, area or area at risk is much larger than that, and so there's a proximal thrombus, this patient is, um, this area is recanalized, and this patient ends up with a tiny, tiny stroke. In the bottom one, you can see there's a large area of diffusion, there's no uh, TTP or perfusion mismatch, so the maybe perhaps a little bit extending more into the distal NCA, and then this patient is not recanalized and then goes on to complete the infarct, which involves that entire territory. And so identifying which patients are in that top category where there's area of brain that's being hypoperfused or at risk or dysfunctional but not yet infarcted and trying to treat those patients has really um, been a challenge. Um, there's other imaging that, you know, CT is becoming better and better, so using um, multi-phase CT angiography to look at collaterals is, will also be an area that will be up and coming because um, we know that patients with good collaterals tend to withstand ischemia for longer because they're getting perfused from other areas, and so the outcomes are different for these patients. In fact, some would argue that patients like the top one where you can say there's an, uh, there's an occlusion of the MCA but there's, um, there's collateral perfusion. You can see there's still some um, uh, vessels that are getting blood um, in that 
hemisphere, those patients may not even really benefit from recanalization because they're already getting blood flow from somewhere else. Um, and so different, not all large hemispheric strokes with a proximal occlusion are the same. And this may be one way where we could start to differentiate which patients really need action right away and which patients may not need action right away. Predicting hemorrhagic conversion, I'm going to skip that. So back, so, that, so this is just to conclude here. The SUNO TPA is given to stroke patients, the greater the benefit. Um, and um, chances of a good outcome decrease rapidly for every hour of delay in treatment. Um, patients with acute stroke um, should be uh, evaluated for reperfusion therapies, both IV TPA and uh, mechanical thrombectomy in parallel and as quickly as possible. And decompressive surgery for malignant edema can help some patients and is essentially life-saving for others. Yeah, and that's about it. So if you see a stroke, you know what to do now. Thank you. <laughs> so if, for those of you that were here last week, you can throw this away, or throw this around uh, to answer questions. Pretty fun. So hopefully somebody in the back of the auditorium wants to ask a question. Yeah, Mike. It's pretty heavy. Um, my, my practice is in the cardiac surgery. Huh? What is it? Oh, it is? Okay, got it. I didn't realize what this was, sorry. Um, my, uh, my practice in the cardiac surgery ICU, and I have a pretty specific question that's related to cardiac surgery patients because it's arisen there several times. In yeah. um, patients with left-sided endocarditis, and in particular patients who have not yet had an operation but who are going to need an operation, who have an acute ischemic stroke, I was wondering if you'd comment on revascularization strategies since they're often not candidates for TPA. Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I would simply be giving you my opinion because there's really very little, very little out there to sort of uh, know what the real good outcome would be or what the outcomes would be in those specific cases. And I think um, we would have to think about a lot of the things that that I mentioned, as far as time, and um, yeah, and the real issue is that patients with um, infective endocarditis and embolic strokes tend to have a much much higher risk of hemorrhage, and so uh, for that reason, they're not candidates for IV TPA. Um, but um, I think certainly in select cases, embolectomy would be considered in if it's early enough and there's a good chance of saving brain. I think that. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't have a problem with, with that. Yeah, most definitely within the first six hours. And, and, and in that case, um, depending on, you know, probably uh, if it's been more than four hours since onset of symptoms, some advanced imaging like MR would probably, because it is a riskier situation uh, and showing that diffusion perfusion uh, or showing that tissue is not already infarcted, is probably a good thing to sort of ha inform your analysis of risk benefits a little bit more beyond just a dry CT or a CTA. Um, so, Melissa, with uh, I mean, based on what what you discussed, it seems like we can see we we can anticipate seeing more endovascular therapy for ischemic stroke, right? Yeah. So, with and because that type of therapy first requires some kind of vascular imaging beyond, you know, head, dry head mm -hmm. CT. And because mm -hmm. of 
in somebody with such uh, uh, potentially severe consequences of the stroke um, and the likely minimal risks of um, intravenous contrast, mm -hmm. what, should we proceed directly to CTA for all these patients as opposed to dry head CT, just in anticipation of the likely endovascular need to save time? Yeah, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, and um, in the in the entrance, in, in, in other centers, they do a CTA and a CT at the same time, simultaneously. What we do know is that by no means should a CTA delay the infusion of IV um, TPA. And the challenge we find here is one logistic one, which is getting two IVs in someone, one to give the TPA and one to give the contrast, can sometimes be tricky. And so things as silly as that can sometimes um, um, so there will be no recipe for all patients, but I think if someone's having a large hemispheric stroke and you suspect that they're going to be candidates for embolectomy, then it would be not unreasonable to just, if they have two IVs, send them to the, you know, uh, sorry, send them to the scanner with the, um, the, T, the TPA infusing and get a CTA. In fact, I'm sorry, just to backtrack. So if you're just doing the dry CT for evaluation of IV TPA and you already suspect they're going to need um, uh, embolectomy and they have an IV by miracle of miracles at that point, then yeah, certainly go ahead. But I wouldn't delay the CT and evaluation for IV TPA to get the CTA. It can happen while the TPA is infusing. Um, and in fact, I think the MIMS guidelines are sort of dictating that the CTA happen at outside hospitals because you can imagine we don't, you know, in our emergency room, we don't get most of the acute stroke patients. We tend to receive them from other facilities, especially now since there will really be only three centers in Maryland that can do this kind of treatment, endovascular treatment. Uh, we'll be receiving more patients from outside facilities. And, and so the directive's been to do the scan there to try to expedite the evaluation and also to not unnecessarily transfer patients that are not candidates for, for endovascular treatment. Um, but the timing of that CTA is going to change from patient to patient and situation to situation. So um, one, one thing that I always you know, wonder is how in, in patients that present to the ED with a low NIH stroke scale, um, could it be a TIA? Could it be a stroke? Should mm -hmm. we get lytics? No lit you know, in, in a lot of the patients that we automatically, um, you know, to whom we give uh, lytics, may have had a T, TIA that may with reversible problems. <laughs> and so you have this disproportionate number of those that may have been included in the early administration, in the studies that include the early administration. I mean, I, for me, I mean, risk benefits. You know, if it's a TIA, what, it's less risk, I imagine, for the TPA administration. Mm -hmm. But I, how, how do you factor in those numbers with, um, when looking at these studies? In the, in, the, in, the, in the original, and I, you're referring to the original IVTPA and in the ECAS trial. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, I think that <laughs> not to be sort of coy about the whole thing, I think the definition of TIA has changed over the years. And, right. um, and so um, the, uh, the idea that, um, the symptoms have to completely, re you know, this resolution of symptoms between in 24 hours, which used to be the old definition, no longer is because oftentimes, you know, if someone has neurologic symptoms for 24 hours, even if we can't see it sure. on MRI, there most definitely was injury to the brain at some point somewhere. 
Um, and so the, the rapidly resolving symptoms, you know, the patients with low NIH stroke skills that are rapidly improving are a challenge for everyone, and I struggle with that a lot, too. Um, the, the, I guess we've all been burned by situations where someone's having a, a, a lacoon that's stuttering, and initially the NI stroke skills, two, three, and then next thing you know, it's six. And, and, so, um, and so you always end up kicking yourself in patients that you didn't give TPA because um, ultimately you might have helped those patients. And, 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 and I'll say that even in the original trials, patients, you know, when you look at the subgroup analysis of patients that just had lacunar strokes or small strokes, they still benefit and the outcome improvement was still there for those patients. Yes, what, uh, is early goal-directed therapy, as with everything I feel like we talk about in medicine, applies not just to sepsis. Every, I mean, sooner the better for everything. And, um, one limitation seems like, uh, I mean, numerous limitations to actual administration, because it's in just a small percent of those who actually qualify for TPA actually get it. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's, you know, yeah. uh, I think patient about problem, recognition, transfer, recognition on the part of the providers, um, fear, you know. Yeah. Uh, Twenty percent of patients arrive within the window for TPA. About um, eight percent actually meet all, meet all the criteria, but only a very small percentage of those patients actually get TPA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks. Mm -hmm.